This is The Kicker, a podcast about journalism and media from the Columbia Journalism Review. I'm Pete Vernon. Democracy is coming to an end in Venezuela. Mass protest, widespread hunger, and political violence have become part of everyday life. The country is running out of cash and hyperinflation is rampant. Food and medicine shortages are severe, and the cost of basics like milk and eggs or penicillin have skyrocketed. The situation worsened earlier this year when the party of the country's leader, Nicolas Maduro, started chipping away at the country's democratic institutions. Supreme Court, which is packed with loyalists to the president, started to overturn every single piece of important legislation that the, uh, that the chamber was passing of, of the legislature. And, and then in March, the, the same court tried to uh, dissolve the legislature entirely and take up the uh, legislative, uh, sorry, the lawmaking writing abilities on its own. This was the first sign that the country had dipped deep into authoritarianism. New York Times reporter Nick Casey has been following the economic turned political crisis closely. Since earlier this year, demonstrations have erupted across Venezuela. More than 120 have died in the last four months as protesters clashed with the military. Now there's a constitutional crisis. Last week, Maduro called for a referendum to allow for a rewrite of the Constitution without voter approval. It was a complete sham. All candidates on the ballot were from his own party. A new and controversial Constitutional Assembly is now tasked with rewriting the nation's charter. For Nick, the crisis has become personal. He covered the country for 10 months before the government barred him from returning to Venezuela in October. Casey spoke with CJR's Meg Dalton from Bogota, Colombia, where he's reporting remotely on the situation in Venezuela. You can read more about his experiences at CJR.org. I was flying back to the country using the same visa that I had crossed on the border many, many times before uh, when I was stopped. Uh, I was stopped with uh, several other journalists that were pulled aside. They told all of us that we couldn't get into the country using our papers. Um, I have begun to think since that they were looking for me that night because the other two journalists were allowed through. I was the only one who was barred, and I wasn't given hardly any explanation other than the visa that I had uh, was essentially being revoked. That was the day Nick Casey was barred from Venezuela. It was late October of 2016, and he was coming back from a brief vacation. Uh, I had to uh, stay in the airport that night. Uh, a guard watched over me the whole night to make sure I didn't escape. Uh, not that you really can't escape from that airport. It's one of the most dangerous airports in the world. You wouldn't want to leave it at night. In the morning, I, I was put on the first flight out of Venezuela to Bogota. From Bogota, he went to New York, where he got his passport back. Nick spent months trying to get back into the country, but the Venezuelan government said no. Um, I haven't been able to get back into my apartment. I, I had a home there. Uh, my things remain in Venezuela. I haven't been able to get them out. And, you know, this is kind of a technique that the government has used, which is to put pressure on journalists by making their lives difficult. And the situation is far worse for Venezuelan journalists. Some have been thrown into jail, others threatened by armed gangs or manhandled by the military. Eliangelica Gonzalez is one of those journalists. She was profiled on CJR this week about the violence she's faced as a reporter native to the country. The veteran journalist went viral in Latin America after a video surfaced of the military dragging her away from a protest. In the video, the military surrounds Gonzalez. She's knocked to the ground, kicked, and then dragged away. (laughs) 
The footage is a stark reminder of the situation Venezuelan journalists are facing. The National Press Workers Union says there were more than 200 attacks on journalists in the country during the first four months of 2017. That number doesn't include attacks from the last few weeks, as the country further accelerates its slide into authoritarianism. The government's strategy here is rather than to actually deal with the problems um, that Venezuelans are facing, that we're reporting about, whether it's food or whether it's lack of medicine, they decide to go after the journalists who are, are writing about it uh, or reporting on it, uh, thinking that that might somehow stanch the news from being able to get out. And obviously that's not working. But the news is getting out. That's why the Venezuelan government was targeting journalists like Nick. Well, we set out a pretty aggressive plan when I first arrived to Venezuela to try to cover every aspect of the crisis at the front page of the New York Times. And because the Times is such a big platform, uh, the Venezuelan government is extremely sensitive to it. With every article, Nick says the government became more and more aggressive against him. The turning point was a piece he published about life inside a Venezuelan mental institution. That seemed to uh, get really under their skin because we had actually gotten to a state institution uh, where we witnessed and documented people being tied to chairs, uh, people that were eating their own feces, uh, people that were on the floor, uh, people who had just been abandoned at these places years ago, but now we're just dipping deeper into, into psychosis. Nick says there are two experiences you have in Venezuela. One is working with the government. The other is working with the people. And they were kind of diametrically opposed to each other. The government hasn't been the most welcoming, and that's an understatement. Besides barring Nick, they initially denied him press credentials and even broadcast his photo on television, claiming he was part of the opposition. But his other experience, working with the people, was radically different. Across all walks of life, you find people that really want to talk to you as a journalist and explain what's happening, uh, opening doors to their refrigerators to show you that they don't have any food. Uh, we spent a long time with a family that was leaving Venezuela on a boat to get out of there. People asked Nick to bring them back food and medicine every time he left the country. The thing that I would often ask for most was diapers. Um, it's hard to find diapers in Venezuela right now. They don't make, you know, enough if they make any at all right now. And, uh, and, and they're kind of like gold. And Nick doesn't think things will get any better, at least in the short term. Venezuela is going through a deep political crisis. It's already killed 120 people or more. Uh, the president is under U.S. sanctions and is declared a dictator by many of his neighbors, and I, I, I think that's true myself. That is the political side. If you were somehow able to get out of that, if somehow there were able to be a free election to elect a new person to leave Venezuela, someone that everybody could agree on, that wouldn't change the situation for the food lines on the street or the economic collapse. It might be years before Venezuela is back to normal. Nick can no longer report from within the country, but that's not stopping him from covering the crisis. It's not that this is the first time this, this has happened, but it means that you have to go about your job in a different way. I have to spend a lot more time on my phone. Um, I have to, and this is also unfortunately in a country where many people's phones are tapped, so it makes it very difficult to be able to um, communicate with people in a way that they trust. Um, it means that I have um, to rely increasingly on uh, my local staff there. And these are two journalists, uh, Ana Vanessa Herrero and uh, Patricia Torres, who are uh, really wonderful 
uh, journalists and novenists that really well. They become essentially my eyes and ears um, on the ground. Um, and while we still cover the country uh, just as aggressively as before, it means that we can't, I can't see everything that I report on. Before we go on, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, Pete, I have a serious dilemma. I am in need of a really good book. Well, that's convenient because I have in my hand a new fascinating story of America's pioneering broadcast journalist and global adventurer, Lowell Thomas, in The Voice of America. Tom Brokaw calls Voice of America a lively account of a legendary life. So, Meg, read The Voice of America, new from St. Martin's Press. Now, taking it from Venezuela to the Middle East, where a diplomatic crisis is unfolding and a news organization is at its center. I'm joined once again by CJR's Christy Chisholm and Meg Dalton. Christy, how's it going? It's going great. Thank you. Good to have you back from vacation. And Meg, <laughs> good to have you back again as well. Yeah, I'm always here, so <laughs> get, get ready. Well, it's still nice to have you. <laughs> Just get ready. <laughs> All right. So last month, a group of Gulf states led by Saudi Arabia issued a series of demands to Qatar. Among those demands was the closure of Al Jazeera, which is based in Doha, the Qatari capital and is one of the few trusted voices in the region. Now, Israel is planning to follow suit, saying it will strip Al Jazeera journalists of their accreditation and close Al Jazeera's Jerusalem Bureau. So, guys, why do we care about what happens to Al Jazeera in the Middle East? Why is this a big deal for us? Well, we should probably care about the silencing of journalists anywhere in the world, regardless yes, of circumstances. That's true. So we should probably As care. good journalism watchdogs, that we definitely should. <laughs> so, so that's like issue number one. Uh, but then it's also really concerning because it's Israel who is now threatening to, to ban this organization. Um, and Israel is, you know, supposed to be at least, you know, a democratic country and really the only one in the region and, and, and also our ally. And so it puts us in an odd position, too, in terms of like what the United States role should be in this, if we should have a role. And I don't know. I think there are a lot of levels. Right. I mean, it's one thing, I guess, if places like Saudi Arabia or the United Arab Emirates, where there already are press restrictions in place, are banning outlets. But if Israel is getting involved in this sort of censorship, it does seem to cut a little bit deeper for people to care about the free press. I mean, like, and, and all of these countries are accusing Al Jazeera of inciting violence, which I don't think there's any evidence of. No, I mean, we should say that Al Jazeera is not a perfect organization. They do not criticize the Qatari government in the same ways that they do the uh, other governments in the region. So while they are not maybe the journalistic ideal, they are an important voice in that region, one of the best news sources during the Arab Spring. And what's really interesting, too, is that this seems like a makeshift sanction on the Qatari government, like vis-a-vis Al Jazeera, right? Because they don't agree with Qatari foreign policy, so they're attacking this media organization that is so directly linked to the Qatari government. And it's part of a larger trend across the world that might not be individually connected, right? Like each of these places we've been talking about, Venezuela, Qatar, this whole Gulf area, might not be particularly linked with, say, Turkey, but there is a crackdown against independent journalism around the world, and that's something that, as Christy noted, we should always be worried about. Bringing it back to our shores, Fox News is back in the news again for all the wrong reasons. Eric Bowling, a longtime host at Fox Business Channel and Fox News, has been accused of sending a picture of a male genitalia. 
Yeah, that's. I guess that's that's easy. A single genitalia. (laughs) Sure, Uh, a vulgar picture of male genitalia to at least three coworkers. This story was broken by Yashar Ali, a freelance journalist who was writing for the Huffington Post, and bullying was suspended within 24 hours. To Fox's credit, compared to the way they've handled past allegations, but Eric Bowling is now suing just Yashar Ali, not the Huffington Post, for $50 million. No less Yikes. than, they say, $50 million. Exactly. And if, uh, you've ever, if you've ever been a freelance reporter before, you can uh, <laughs> cannot afford to pay that. Oh, right. you can't afford No, there's no. no, I mean, that's not even. No, but uh, Yashar Ali will not have to pay, apparently, his legal fees because his editors at the Huffington Post are sticking up for him. Yeah, Lydia, Lydia Polgrain is setting a really good precedent right now for how editors should or how the relationship between editors and freelancers should be, you know, especially in a climate where journalists are constantly being attacked and where many reporters are turning towards freelance work. Um, it's really important to have the backing of the organization that you're reporting for. Yeah, attacked not just, you know, physically in the way that we would talk about uh, Greg Gianforte and Ben Jacobs, but legally, right? This is something we saw when A.J. Delario, the editor at Gawker, was sued individually by Hulk Hogan. It's something where journalists in this climate of a distrust in the media may be facing more suits from uh, aggrieved parties. So to have Lydia Paul Green speak up immediately about this and say, Yasher's a meticulous reporter and we stand behind him financially, that's a big deal and, as Meg said, an example for others to follow. Speaking of following examples, U.S. President Donald Trump seems to have embraced the example of North Korean leadership in his response to North Korea's threats of nuclear annihilation, I guess we're going with, (laughs) uh, in response to a report in The Washington Post that the North Koreans had figured out how to miniaturize a nuclear warhead, which, of course, would be a problem because they have been testing missiles that could conceivably reach American soil, Donald Trump said this. North Korea best not make any more threats to the United States. They will be met with fire and fury like the world has never seen. So that happened. And on a very real world geopolitical national security level, it's terrifying to have the president speaking apparently off the cuff and threatening a nuclear power with annihilation and fire and fury. So we should be scared on some level. This is a situation that could bring about the deaths of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people at some point in the future. Um, That's a big deal, but it's also an issue that some media organizations took immediately to an extreme. Hawaii is the first U.S. state to make preparations in case of a nuclear attack from North Korea. That was a CNN clip. Oh, God. Jesus. CNN, really. The, the language that's being used both by, you know, the commander in chief and also media organizations like CNN is incredibly alarmist and hyperbolic. And as you said, this is a very serious situation. But at what point is that kind of language harmful? For the narrative? Yeah, definitely. I think we also have to, I mean, I wonder too if we're reacting in the way we are because it's Trump in the White House who has proven to have very little control over his impulses. Um, I guess certainly his impulses to say things off the cuff in very serious situations. Um, 
you know, North Korea has been a threat for, you know, a decade and beyond. So the like the level of threat, you know, may have increased recently, whatever. We don't actually know. We can't confirm what they have or what they don't have, really. Um, but I think that this situation feels so alarming. And I think the, the media is reacting in kind, in part because Trump is the one who's sitting in office, not Barack Obama. This is a good time to, to harken back to that old kind of chestnut that there is no media, because while some outlets were getting people ready for bomb shelters and saying that something terrible is imminent. There were people, sometimes on those own networks, CNN had Jeffrey Tubin come on right after this clip played about Hawaii and say, let's let's just step back here. So we should kind of, without indicting the entire media, say there's been a mixed reaction. Yeah, and, and one of those reactions was humor. Um, if you've been on Twitter the last couple of days, you will see some really interesting coping strategies with the anxiety that we're all currently facing. Well, if you want some of the the great tweets that came out of this, you can check out a piece that Meg co-wrote on CJR.org. I think one thing for media members that would be good to remember is that we're not all national security experts, nor are we nuclear physicists. And so maybe this is a situation (laughs) that is not best served by cable news talking heads and should be left to really smart national security writers, uh, really smart science writers who can tell us what North Korea's actual capabilities are and threats. And we should not all be trying to predict what's going to happen. We should just enjoy the dark humor and keep reading the tweets. That's the end of our show. Thanks for kicking it with us. I want to thank Meg Dalton and Christy Chisholm, as always, for being here. And also Nick Casey for giving us some of his time from Bogota. Thank you to all of you out there listening. If you would do us one more solid and go leave us a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever you listen to The Kicker, we would greatly appreciate it. Then go check out all the great content on CJR.org. We'll see you next week.